Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 212, recorded for May 10th, 2023. The Cloud Pod wades into microservice versus monoliths. Good evening, Matt, Ryan, Jonathan, and hey, Peter, welcome back. Peter, hello. Long time. Uh, I know you've been traveling the world uh, doing some things, so we're happy to have you back. Thank you. Yeah. I hate to see you leave. Uh, well, we have uh, we have news this week, uh, and I guess Peter, you are our first news story for the week. I am, I am, I am riding off into the sunset and retiring from my podcasting career. Uh, so I got to say, I'm so glad that you guys landed someone with much better opinions than me, who probably also doesn't have to deal with the non disparagement agreements that I had to. So uh, I'm sure everyone is going to love. Hearing Matt's hot takes every week, uh, and I definitely wanted to thank you all for the years of education and fun. And I will definitely start listening to the podcast now that I do not have to hear my own voice. So. <laughs> well, that's good. We, we appreciate you finally becoming a listener and, and helping our numbers up. That's good. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you, of course. And you know, I think uh, when I first asked uh, your brother uh, if you could, you know, come and do the show, he was. I think there was a confusion that it was only one episode, and then uh, we tricked you into it. Yes. So we've we've appreciated yeah. you joining us for you know basically two hundred some odd episodes, um, and uh, you know giving us our insights on the partner side, which has been really helpful as well. Because while I did partner in the past, you are currently in the partner side, <laughs> and it's a it's an ever evolving uh, business out there. And so we've been really appreciative of that perspective as well, even when you can't badmouth the clouds like we do. <laughs> it's still invaluable. <laughs> so, thank you very much. Course. Yes. And but of course you're always welcome to come back. So if you want to hop on, you know, you you know where we're at. You can always come. I will. Us. Or if you, Foghorn has something really cool they want I to present. I will plug about, anything I can. You're always welcome to come and do that. So absolutely. So you you'll go to special guest awesome. status when Thank you, you. Want to come. <laughs> nice. There you go. Awesome. Well, let's get into uh, other news. The uh, FinOps Foundation has announced Focus, which is an open sourced initiative designed to help companies more easily track their cloud costs. The goal of the initiative is to develop a standard specification for organizing cloud spending and usage data. And in the future, Focus will also provide a number of related data management capabilities. Microsoft and Google will join the steering committee tasked with managing the project and will be coming out with support for this very, very soon. Uh, there's a quote here from Udam Dewarja, the chair of the FinOps Foundation's Focus Working Group. Focus will solve problems that organizations maturing their cloud adoption now face. Today, there's no clear way to unify cost and usage data sets across different vendors. Uh, so that's great. Standardizes terminology for describing cloud expenses and usage metrics and provides you a standardized schema or a data format in which financial information can be organized. Then you can build this into things like Elasticsearch and others that use standardized formats. Uh, the first version will run in June, uh, which will be great. And uh, can we just get Amazon on this too? Uh, but I'm sure there'll be more announcements about this coming up at the upcoming FinOps X Foundation uh, conference in June uh, in San Diego. So do check that out if you're interested. I actually have something to say about that as well. You know, we're, um, uh, we have uh, one of our directors, Mike Wisely, is in the FinOps Foundation and been uh, really excited about this and uh, productizing a little service offering that's going to include both uh, Foghorn services as well as some tooling. And Focus is uh, going to be part of the tooling uh, compatibility. It'll be across clouds. So maybe that'll be my first guest uh, appearance when we 
launch that service offering. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to have you for that. And then uh, I will actually be at the FinOps X Foundation. You've been missed out when I talked about it, but I'll be there. Uh, oh, cool. So if, you're, uh, if your people are going to be there as well, we should definitely connect. But uh, cool. as I mentioned in prior episodes, I'll be there with stickers and, and things for you to find. I'm trying to talk them into getting a sticker table so I don't have to stand around holding stickers, but we'll see if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to AWS. There's a new storage-optimized Amazon EC2 i4G instances powered by the Graviton 2 processor and the AWS Nitro SSD. These come in standardized shapes from 2 vCPU and 16 gigs of memory all the way up to 64 vCPU and 512 gigs of memory. Uh, and you can get as much as four, 15 terabytes of storage if you want uh, on that big boy. Uh, they say this delivers a 15% better performance than their storage-optimized instances, uh, and this leverages all of the greatest Nitro SSD NVMe to do that. With 4,600 megabits per second of sequential writes and 8,000 megabytes of sequential reads, that's a lot of reads and writes. Yeah, all your ML workloads are belong to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's crazy because it's like even some of these numbers are just staggering for for workloads when you know the traditional sort of standard app is you know hundreds of megabytes maybe like <laughs> at, at peak. So this is it's a lot. I'm glad I don't have to pay for this. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy that kind of performance locally, but in the clouds, pretty awesome. Yeah, 800,000 random write ops, IOPS. I mean, that's just crazy. And then they can support a million random reads. That's, you know, you, you'd buy a whole sand just to do that <laughs> in prior lives. Uh, you know, and that'd be your entire workload. Now you're talking about a single server with that kind of throughput. It's just, it's incredible. I'm just waiting for somebody to run their SQL database on it and waiting for it to die. And then wondering where all the data went. Oh, well, God. I mean, a SQL would have to run on Graviton 2 first, which... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sorry, MySQL, how about that? There you go. <laughs> uh, for those of you who have to uh, support .NET apps, uh, very often we talk about there's got to be standardized patterns and methods for doing .NET on AWS. Uh, and uh, up until now, there really has just been some example code or you'd go search GitHub or Stack Overflow, heaven forbid. Uh, but AWS has a new open-source sample application, the fictitious used-book e-commerce store called Bob's Used Books for .NET developers. Uh, the sample app is built on ASP.NET Core version 6 and represents an initial modernization of typical on-premise custom application. Uh, this represents the first stages of modernization. The application uses modern cross-platform .NET, enabling it to run on Windows and Linux systems in the cloud. And the .NET app is based on a monolithic model view controller designer in VC. Typically of the .NET framework era, it also uses a single Microsoft SQL Server database to contain inventory, shopping cart, user data, and more, and leverages several AWS native services, including Cognito, RDS, S3, AWS SSM, Secrets Manager, CloudFront, and Recognition. Uh, and the only thing I was sad about is that uh, it doesn't use store procedures, which all .NET applications <laughs> must use store procedures. <laughs> yeah, well... I mean, they want to build a bridge for, for .NET into the cloud, right? And so they, they, they can't start off with stored procedures because it's so hard to, to make that work in a cloud-native environment. Yeah, it would be nice, though, if they give you a pattern to, hey, move your stored procedure out of a SQL database and move it into serverless or into some other um, a thing like that. That would be super nice. Uh, mm -hmm. I was impressed they tried to use Kamido with a .NET application because... I mean, based on how hard it is to get a .NET or a Linux Java application to use Cognito, I can't imagine a .NET app. <laughs> Isn't this just you know like yeah API you know only as deep as the API gateway layer? Like I imagine, <laughs> it'd be very yeah. difficult. <laughs> 
I do think that, I mean, this was definitely something that was really has been asked for for a while, like supporting teams who are trying to make the, you know, the leap from, you know, supporting .NET and .NET frameworks and data centers. Like they just need something to chew on and an example of how to get there. And, you know, especially if they're being asked to like, you know, switch over to Java and some other technologies and sort of this, like it's really easy to get lost. So I like seeing these things as an example that you can point at and, you know, hopefully they don't copy pasta the code, but, you know, at least they have that to reference now. It definitely is something that I wish the cloud providers provided more of these like sample segments of like, hey, you know, based on different technologies, these are the way you can leverage other services. Just even spark ideas in people's heads of different things they can do. Yeah, I I can imagine that executives would love to be able to use this when they're trying to get their company to move to the cloud and some engineer is saying, no, 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 our stuff doesn't move. We've got .NET, ASP.NET. It's not going to work because SQL Server and we can't integrate with Cognito and RDS and S3. And wait a minute, there's simple code right here. Go do your job. Love uh, love taking out excuses. Uh, the uh, the one thing I did thought was interesting, they did say that uh, they're curious about what modernization journeys you would uh, decide to take with the application which will help them create future content for the sample. And if you'd like to make a pull request with sample content, um, you can do that as well. And they also, uh, if you want to get this feedback, you can do it in the issue section of the GitHub. And I'm just most excited that I created an Amazon.com competitor with a .NET application given to me <laughs> by Amazon.com. So there you go. Check the terms you can, you the can do a pull request with Justin's new books as an uh, additional section. Yeah, exactly. Uh, AWS is launching a new user notification uh, capability in a single place in the AWS console to set up and view your AWS notifications across multiple AWS accounts, regions, and services. You can essentially set up and view notifications from over 100 AWS services such as S3, EC2, the Health Dashboard, CloudWatch Alarms, or AWS support cases uh, in a consistent, human-friendly format. You can also configure delivery channels via email, chat, and push notifications to the AWS console mobile app where you can receive the notifications. Uh, or you can just view them in the AWS Management Console. So this is uh, this is nice because uh, for those of you who have had to go set up notifications on anything, uh, it's typically like four or five clicks through three or four or five different areas of the application. Typically, the pushing application, then you had to go to the SNS topic to go accept the topic and the subscription and set that up to your email or chat. So nice to have this kind of finally in a single dashboard. Welcome to 2023 Amazon, where all of their cloud providers have basically sort of had this for you already. Could this be in the AWS console in any account in your org, or do you have to be in the... Any account. It's cross-account. Yeah, it can support cross-account. Yep. It looks like from deep in the the notes that there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do in order to get the event bridge events to kind of flow between the accounts. So it doesn't look like it's press a button, get all your accounts in the organization. Looks like it's going to require some setup for multiple accounts. Yeah, you, they do use EventBridge for the multiple accounts, but the fact that it can support it is still nice. <laughs> even if you uh, have to build the pattern to do it yourself. But uh, it, you know, it'd be nice if it was something they would add into organizations. So you could just click that in organizations and set that up for you, but uh, maybe that'll come in a future release. Yeah, it'd be nice if it was something uh, they paid for instead of uh, us having to pay for. <laughs> oh, come on. This is Amazon Cloud. You pay for everything. <laughs> they give you nothing for free other than your free tier, which you'll, ex- you'll use within 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that I saw on this, and I don't know, it was a little while since I looked at this, um, 
that you know you couldn't configure it via APIs. It did not come with API support, and so that was something that on Twitter you know raised some concern. Which is you know if you have a bunch of accounts and you're trying to set this all up, and especially now you know knowing that EventBridge is is key on there, like it's do sort of want to have that be able you know have the ability to sort of set that up programmatically as part of an automation platform or or a landing zone set up. Well, the, and the event bridge part definitely has an API, but man, yeah, the event little, bridge part does. Yeah, yeah, it's that final notification to the the web app or email that doesn't. The other thing I liked about this too is it had the ability to aggregate these alerts. So instead of getting an email for every every time Amazon decides to send me marketing emails, I can have them all consolidated into once a day, which is over nice. And filter, too. like the and filtering filter. is also key, right? I only want alerts from my product accounts, which is yeah. the only examples. And you can filter by region and stuff, so you you know you don't care about uh, health dashboard notifications for some small thing in your DR site. You can turn that stuff off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super nice because it makes things like quota management across hundreds of accounts so much easier to automate now. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that brings me back. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't all that bad, but it was just what you know. It's just one of those silly things, like you know, go out and spin up hundreds of lambdas to go check all the quotas and do some math, and then generate a report. It's another lambda to go figure out who to talk to. You know, like it's these things are nice when you when you don't have to build all that. I was I was confused about the need to have the support case updates that way because I was like, why well, used to always get those? And I was like, oh, it's right because I had. We are all running a DL that all of the Amazon root accounts pointed to. So every time someone mm-hmm. created a support account, we would just get CC'd on the email by mm-hmm. default because we were the root mm-hmm. account email address. I was yep. like, oh yeah, I guess if you didn't do that, that wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes, there's options now you didn't have before. Yeah. Moving on to Mountain View and Google. Chronicle has several new features this week to make securing in the Google Cloud even easier than ever. If you're using Chronicle for your SIM or for other security SOAR operations, you get a new Looker-based advanced report module to create strong BI capabilities and have them completely embedded into your dashboard. Uh, Customers can now grant access to Google support to help address your issues. There's a new case list view to help it easier to find those cases uh, raised by Chronicle. There's a new integration between the Chronicle alerts and the SOAR module. There's enhanced uh, UDM search, and there's now ability to schedule reports so you can don't have to log into the console to get all the data about your security posture to your SOC. You can just email them, which is always appreciated, right? <laughs> email. <laughs> I mean, it's better than having an SOP where they go check a dashboard, I think. But, you know. Yeah. I was, think, I was thinking about that with single pane of glass. Like, do you really want people staring at a single pane of glass to get alerts? Or do you want them to get paged or shocked when something goes down? I, yeah. Eyes on glass. Eyes on glass. Yeah. In, in true developer fashion, I want all the things. Like, I would like my single pane of glass where I can go look and see everything without any configuration. I would also have like it to not have to go look at the thing. And <laughs> so. yeah. oh, I did. I did forget for Australian listeners. Uh, there's expanded regional support in Australia for IRAP protection. I don't know what that is, but someone in Australia does. BigQuery differential privacy feature is now available to you in preview. This is a SQL building block that analysts and data scientists can use to anonymize their data. And in the future, they will be able to integrate <laughs> differential privacy with BigQuery data clean rooms to help organizations <laughs> anonymize and share sensitive data all while preserving to the privacy. Side too. <laughs> the build on differential privacy library that is used by the ads, data hub, and the COVID-19 community mobility port. And they're also partnering with Tumult Labs, a leader in differential privacy for companies and government agencies. 
Tumult Labs offers technology and professional services to help Google Cloud customers with privacy implementations, which is great because if I was asked to figure out privacy uh, on my system, I would definitely want to call them and not try to figure that out. And all the laws of privacy because there's so many laws, so many laws. Uh, differential privacy is an anonymization technique that limits the personalized information that is revealed by an output and is commonly used to allow inference and to share data while preventing someone from learning information about an entity in the data set and potentially introducing bias. Anything that can make anonymizing data for, you know, especially when you deal with GDPR or any of the other regulations easier, um, especially then to give to developers logs and things like that or to external parties if you're selling the data or anything along those lines makes life exponentially easier. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much easier this makes it, but this has always been a big ask uh, for people moving to the cloud who then you know, want an easy way to have test data in their test environments and uh, other, uh, other use cases. So if it does make it easier and it's not just a tool that does it on BigQuery, then uh, I can imagine some people are gonna be pretty happy. Yep. Anything to make privacy easier, GDPR, and all those things are a pain. Yeah. Uh, so Azure had a couple articles this week. Uh, they're not super exciting, so we'll probably go through these ones relatively quickly. But uh, So Azure HPC is now available to you for future health emergencies, which I hope this is a wasted investment by, Amazon, by Microsoft because uh, I hope to not have a future health emergency like COVID ever again. Uh, but uh, this will enable researchers to unleash the next generation of healthcare breakthroughs, and the computational capabilities offered by HPC, HP Series VMs, powered by the AMD, AMD Epic TM CPU cores, allow researchers to help accelerate insights and advances into genomics, precision medical, and clinical trials with near-infinite high-performance bioinformatics infrastructure capabilities, which is all a lot of really big words. I don't know what they mean. Uh, but basically, you know, the gist of this article is that the idea is that you can use these GPUs, do all kinds of modeling for future outbreaks, how they how they are spread, how they get it controlled, and then how you break into the molecular level of the of the particular virus or disease to model proteins, antibodies, and antivirals. Hopefully, help prevent the next pandemic, which would be nice to prevent it. So I guess that's okay, but uh, I prefer not to have one altogether. That would be better. Yeah. I think we oh, we're not due for one now for a hundred years, so it's not going to be our problem. Unless we live forever, but yeah, then it'll be our problem. Curses! There's a flaw in this plan. I mean, in podcast world, we'll live forever because podcasts never die. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least until the website dies, then yeah, it probably does die. But. Yeah, millions of years from now, our our voices will be just being heard in the Andromeda Galaxy. All those poor souls. They'll be, be taken over by AI, and this podcast will continue to be run by AIs. <laughs> you know, I think near infinite, uh, near infinite high performance is probably a bit of a marketing stretch. You think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I do like I mean, AMD CPUs, but near infinite, they are not. Prove them wrong. I dare you? <laughs> just, just use Justin's credit card bill. Yeah, no, don't use the CloudPod <laughs> account, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, we'll talk about it a little bit here. But there's a potential way they could get burstable capacity for their AI. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe it is unlimited. They just keep bursting through clouds. <laughs> we'll get there in a second. Uh, continued, uh, oh, sorry, the uh, next one is the cloud-based chip design for national security achieves a key milestone on Azure. 
Uh, continued U.S. leadership in emerging technologies requires a sustainable supply of advanced chips to power innovation from AI to quantum computing. The Chips and Science Act passed last year aims to boost domestic research and manufacturing capacity for critical microelectronics. To support this, the DoD launched the Rapid Assured Microelectronics Prototypes Using Advanced Commercial Capabilities Program. Gotta love the government, man. Uh, they do call it RAMP for short, <laughs> an effort to accelerate the secure, sustainable development of microelectronics for defense technologies. As part of this effort, Azure has developed three new state-of-the-art chips to benefit the Azure government cloud customers and to ensure compliance with DoD supply chain requirements. So basically, those requirements are it cannot be manufactured in China in any possible human way. Uh, and so that's what this is all about. And so those will become available to you in the Azure government cloud if security and uh, you potentially process company, you know, government secrets, you should probably think about learning more about this. Yeah, I think the China-Taiwan TSMC issue is, is, uh, is going to reach some kind of boiling point fairly soon. So we, we better start building chip fab plants here. Otherwise, we, uh, we're going to be back in the Stone Ages. Yeah, I don't see why we wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, you got some big names in this article. Raytheon's in here. You got BA systems. These are all big, uh, you know, national security vendors who do a lot of stuff. So uh, this ramp program is all about getting these things to be better. And so, yeah, hopefully, you know, we don't have another war in the world. We don't need another one. But um, if it happens in the China Asia area, then we'll have some options. We were lucky to get the warning shot of supply chain issues. <laughs> like, yeah, really. Yeah. Didn't didn't take a World War War for us to learn this lesson. So yep. hopefully, we can adjust in time. So is this them building their own ARM processor chips or, you know, are they then trying to leverage like Intel and AMD to build chips for them in the U.S.? I'm trying to fully understand this one. Yeah, so the RAMP program uh, is allocating, I think it's a couple hundred million dollars towards chip manufacturing and to build the capabilities in the United States to basically build these things. So Intel's got some of the money, AMD's got some of it. Uh, and so basically, for if they have chip fabs here, they're, they're being repurposed to do some of this. And it is ARM chips. Uh, and they're also looking to build potentially new ARM chip uh, fabs here in the U.S. as well to support this initiative. Uh, and they just, you know, again, it's about national security and making sure that, you know, A, the chips that we use in our national security devices are not compromised in some low-level microelectronic uh, manipulation by the Chinese government, uh, but also to make sure that in the event that, you know, there is a war or something that we have access to the chips and things we need to be successful. Hundreds of millions of dollars being dedicated to this. Thanks, COVID. I remember predicting that AWS was going to build a fab plant. That didn't happen yet. <laughs> Has not happened yet. <laughs> well, by your measure, then it you know it'll probably happen in like what three to four years. Like you're just a prognosticator <laughs> usually. <laughs> just a little too early. He's ahead of the curve. Yeah, like Slack getting bought. He was a year. He was a year too early. Yeah. So. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. 
All right, so let's talk about burstable AI capacity on Oracle. <laughs> so apparently Oracle and Microsoft have uh, discussed an unusual agreement to rent servers from each other if either company runs out of computing power for cloud customers that use large-scale AI, according to a person with knowledge of this arrangement. So this is rumor. Uh, the pros deal discussions have been happening apparently with Oracle Chairman Larry Ellison and other senior executives uh, to firm up broader AI strategies, including how to use AI software to improve the company's core software products. Uh, the article goes on to say that Oracle is also trying to build its own AI services like Vertex and SageMaker, etc. Uh, and those should be coming to market later this year. But uh, all I can think here is, hmm, who might have bought a lot of A100 Tensor Core CPUs that uh, are sitting around, maybe not being used, while there's an, a shortage of AI chips everywhere else? And then who also happens to have a direct connect between their cloud and the other cloud, you know, for things like running Oracle databases that could take advantage of selling AI chips to Azure for a profit. I don't know who that could be. Give me an O. So they said sharing <laughs> them, but... So Mike, you, yeah. you think, for the most part, Microsoft is going to be supplying the demand and Oracle the supply? That is what chips. I think is, this is about, yeah. yes. That's yeah. fair. I feel like we should cut out the mailman and go directly to Oracle uh, on their spot market and get chips for cheap. You just yeah, have to build all of the AI components <laughs> yourself. Yeah, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. And then, you know, also you're going to set up Oracle, which if you go back to Justin does a thing, when I set up Oracle for the first time, it's not easy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, definitely keep that in mind as you... Um, That's why we delegate to Ryan Lucas. Yeah, oh, no. And make him hate mm-hmm. us more. It's fine. <laughs> That's why Ryan Lucas always looks so tired. Yeah. This is just going to end up with, with still no access to Oracle, and I'm just going to swear a lot more. I think that's... <laughs> Yeah, I always I sort of wonder that sometimes I'm like, would Ryan hate me more if I made him do a project in Azure or Oracle? And I don't <laughs> I don't know the answer to that Ooh. question. Uh, I, I don't either. Let's not find out. I don't. Yeah. yeah. No. No. No plan. Put my no money plans. on Oracle. <laughs> Put my money in Oracle. I don't. I don't know. Have you used the Azure console every day? I think. I, I, I don't yeah. think it's as bad. You are. You are. Crazy. <laughs> it's been tainted. Yes, that's why I'm here talking to everyone. Got Drinking the Azure Kool-Aid. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that when it takes you 25 minutes to figure out where they put something as simple as like volumes, it's like, okay, why is it there? I don't understand. Yeah, but the dynamic search for everything in the console, and I can just like type the name and it finds it, is a really nice feature. As long as you know that like things like the CDN is called uh, front door service. <laughs> you have to know yeah. that first. Yeah, but what about SageMaker or any of the other services that you're like? Yeah, no one uses that. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, well, we were uh, we were going to do another cloud journey series this week, but um, there was kind of an epic uh, brouhaha on the internet this week about uh, something very close and dear to the cloud native journey that we've been talking about, which is that. Uh, the opinionated creator of Ruby on Rails and cloud repatriation, who we've talked about many times, DHH, or David Hanneman Hansen, uh, has basically posted a blog post saying that Amazon can't even make microservices or serverless work for themselves. Uh, they can't make sense of it. Uh, his latest poke in the eye, of course, at Amazon starts from a pretty innocent post by the Amazon Prime team, which we'll talk about here in a second, where they move from a microservices architecture to a monolithic architecture. Uh, DHH basically sums up his entire opinion that microservices are crazy town and that the real world results of the microservice theory is that in practice, microservices pose perhaps the biggest siren song of needlessly complicating your system and serverless only makes it worse. 
He states that microservices uh, are basically zombie architecture, another strain of intellectual contagion that refuses to die and has been eating brains since the dark days of J2EE and remote server beans through the, dev, through the web services Death Star nonsense of years ago. And he particularly points out that Amazon was the one who started all this craziness with their huge move to service-oriented architecture and API calls, and ultimately, Amazon can't make it work either, so you shouldn't try. Bah, humbug. <laughs> <laughs> DHH seems like one of those people that if you had working for you in a company, like you could not coordinate as part of a, you know, a, a major initiative that needed a span across multiple teams. Like, like all of the points here are largely like this only works with Amazon scale. This only works at Amazon scale, which I like, I think that there's a lot of sort of counter evidence to that. But I mean, I think that it's also the, if you're going to make everything hyperbolic and, and binary where it's like, there's a right and a wrong, you're, you're always going to be able to pick and find solutions that aren't a good fit in that because there's a ton of stuff, in fact, the majority in the middle. Yeah. So I, I, let's, let's pivot over to uh, Prime moving to monolithic application, uh, first of all, because that's where the, all this starts, which is a, a lovely blog post by the Amazon Prime engineering team, which uh, I did see this when it first came across the webs and I just wrote it off because it has a, a lovely title called Scaling Up the Prime Video and Audio Video Monitoring Service and Reducing Cost by 90%. Which, you know, whatever, I don't care about Prime. Their costs are ridiculous, no matter what you do. Um, and so, you know, when you read through this, you realize all of a sudden that this is not all of Amazon Prime. So, first of all, it's not all of that. It's really just a microservice of Prime. And in this case, the day deal with the big video files and long-running processes, which are not things that I would necessarily concern we want to put on serverless anyways. Uh, they point out that they built a, what they built worked and was meeting their, wasn't meeting their service SLIs and SLOs, and so the re-architecture to a monolith addressed those key KPI indicators. Uh, these patterns are all tools and methods, and there's never one correct answer. It depends on many factors, but they all know that microservices should be omnipotent and immutable. And if you break them down too much, like in this case, you end up in microservice dependency logic hell, uh, which is basically what happened here. So this is a microservice that was trying to become more microservices, uh, and that ultimately hurt their SLI and SLO. And so they refactored it into a monolith that actually can handle the large video service and the many, multiple calls to S3 that they needed to make to you know, basically transcode video. I think the problem they had really is that they, they, they took the software architecture and kind of projected that onto the infrastructure services they could use to fill those particular functions in, in the service they were delivering. Whereas, I mean, and yes, it worked. And yes, it made sense logically. You know, the diagram's the same regardless of whether it's in a monolith or whether it uses managed services. But they realize they made a mistake and they need to bring those back to be more tightly cobbled again. It's It makes sense. I mean, there's monoliths and there's monoliths. There's huge monoliths that are unmanageable and there's small monoliths like this, which make total sense just as there's microservices deployments which are completely out of control and so much makes sense. You know, it's a huge sliding scale, but to me, this just kind of seems like a a little overzealous sort of turning what should be a software architecture into um into sort of an infrastructure deployment type architecture. I mean it's not the first time I've seen engineers take software architecture and try to apply it directly to cloud. And this is this is one of those gotchas that can happen to you in cloud native, um, which is where a cloud center of excellence can kind of help you address those gaps uh, and help you identify where that might be happening. But um, you know, there's a really great video out there. I'll link to it in the show notes um, about uh, a fictional company called Bell Computers, uh, and they're overly breaking <laughs> down microservices. 
Uh, and you know, basically, you know, if your if your microservice isn't omnipotent uh, and can't answer the question without having to call five other microservices, you're going to end up in a really bad latency nightmare of dependencies. Uh, and so, you know, there are there are points where you can get a microservice to be too small as well. And again, I think when you think about this as one particular microservice of the entire Amazon Prime solution, um, you know, this is just an area where a monolith made more sense, and that's okay. I think it's always about just using the right tool in the right place. And here you're dealing with massive video files and they were trying to convert and pull different data points out. And, you know, that level of data just doesn't work well a lot of times. And you got to use the right tool in the right place at the right time. And the microservices approach with massive data sets just didn't work for them. I think it's better that they realized it than just kept going down that hole until they were so far deep that, you know, the system was crashing upon itself. So, of course, all this controversy spurred Warner Vogels into action, who had to write a blog post on all things distributed blog, of course. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he points out a couple of things that I want to point out. Uh, one, that software architecture is not like the architecture of bridges and houses. After a bridge is constructed, it's pretty hard, and it's not, if not impossible, to change. And software allows you to make changes, and as you evolve the architecture, you may change components. Uh, he highlights how if you hire the best engineers, you should trust them to make the best decisions, and that there is not one architectural pattern to rule them all. Uh, which is a really pragmatic approach to what we just said. <laughs> so thanks, Warner, for agreeing with everything we just said here on the Cloud Pod. We appreciate you, as usual. Yeah, I want to disagree with David Hansen here, but Ruby on Rails, come on. He made Ruby on Rails. How can I disagree with someone who created Ruby on Rails and raced in the 24 hours of Le Mans? Yeah. Come He's on. also the, uh, one of the creators of Basecamp, if you needed a lightweight project management software. Uh, he's moving to the to his on-prem data center, so it'll be less secure. So you just remember that. Uh, but he does have some guidelines uh, that I think are a little interesting too on how to recover from microservices if you've you've gone too far and you need to go back to Monolith. He uh, gives you five tips on how to get back on track, uh, which is uh, path to Monolith. And remember when he said, "Stop digging." If you can't clean it up, if you keep making a mess at the same time, so stop making new microservices. That's super helpful. Yeah, super helpful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Number two: consolidate critical dependent paths first. Number three, leave your isolated performance hotspots for last. Because, of course, do the hardest thing that causes the most impact to performance for last. That makes sense. Uh, prioritize dropping the most esoteric implementations. And lastly, learn to partition large systems with modules rather than networks. So thanks. Thanks for that, DHH. I appreciate it. So some of this is on Amazon, right? Because their monolith, uh, and I'm using air quotes, um, is a single ECS task that runs on two ECS clusters with hooks to SNS and S3. So I don't, they don't specify how many containers are within each cache, but their monolith is, is not what the monolith was traditionally labeled and the, the problems associated with it, right? If you are splitting up uh, a workload that can live in a single container, be developed by a single team, you know, like I'd argue that that's not really a microservice. You're, you're, or a monolith, you're, what you're doing is trying to take something that is small and compartmentalized and easily managed, which are not monolith elements, and then you're trying to break that apart into two small pieces using step functions and lambda, and that's where they hit their scaling concerns. And so I think a little bit is on the, the Amazon article just because it's sort of inflammatory by design, and it's I think it's actually misusing the term monolith. I don't think a single ECS task makes a monolith at all, in the slightest. Right. Well, I mean, again, 
yeah, monolith, what is that, <laughs> the definition of it? Mm-hmm. Um, inside of that, you know, there's multiple things that are modules that are talking to each other and doing processing and, and handling these things, doing handoffs. So there is monolithic from that perspective. But yeah, I would agree with you. But I, again, I don't, mm-hmm. like when I read the original article and like, you know, the headline of this article is scaling up the prime video, audio, video monitoring service and reducing cost by 90%. This isn't, you know, in the sub is uh, the move from distributed microservice architecture to a monolith application helped achieve higher scale resilience and reduce costs. You know, it's it wasn't meant to be an inflammatory, like you should everyone should do this. This is the end all be all solution either. Like it's a very yeah. logical article. And again, like I mentioned earlier, they they very clearly said, like, hey, what we had worked. It just didn't meet the KPIs that we needed to meet. Mm-hmm. And so this was an evolution of our architecture to meet those requirements. And so we analyzed it and we determined that you know, the handoff in the network and these things was too much. And so it made sense to stream down to something simpler. Um, and again, that's okay. That's what architecture is supposed to be. And, you know, potentially this new thing saves them money because, again, it runs on two ECS clusters, which probably have a few nodes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, instead of having to have a lot more ECS nodes and and uh, services and tasks running out there to do all the things. So. That being said, I'm still surprised that they made this a public blog post. Well, I don't think that they weird meant for it to get picked up by DHS either. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this was making noise before his blog post because I, I saw this before his original res- response to it because it is, you know, he wasn't the only one with this message that, mm. oh, Amazon is, is abandoning microservices. Which is and so a lot of people have that too far. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. But it's also sort of like, it, it, you know, it sort of went, you know, gained in popularity for that. I really did like Warner's response in the sense that, you know, he didn't sort of pick a side and other than the one thing that he was very deterministic about was you need to review your architecture and you're going to have to change it over time. Like that's the only certainty. And I, I really appreciate that take because it's, I think people get a little married to their implementation and they, they start to focus on how hard it is to, to bring change. And if you don't think about it from the beginning as something that's going to have to change it, you can, Put yourself in a really hard place. Yeah. The other thing about the um, the Amazon Prime article here, that I was just kind of glancing at again while we were talking about it. Um, yeah, they're leveraging S3. <laughs> they're leveraging a bunch of other services from uh, Amazon and cloud. So that even though it's a monolithic application, it's still very cloud native in this approach. And it's you know again like in the DHS example where he's repatriating his data. To replace that service, they'd have to buy SAN, they had to buy fiber network, they had to buy servers, they had to buy load balancers, they had to buy a ton of stuff that they'd have to then set up and configure. Um, and so that's, you know, they're still getting a lot of benefit, even though this is a monolith in this architecture from the cloud and the native, you know, part of cloud. And, you know, in Warner's article, he mentions that S3 is now 300 microservices <laughs> uh, to support all that when it used to be just a few. Uh, because of all the different products and the options and things that S3 can do for you now, which is uh, amazing. And it's easier to scale when it's in small pieces than trying to scale a big, massive monolith. I think it's interesting they mentioned cost. I mean, mentioning performance is obviously very important, but the fact that they referred to the cost of running the service kind of highlights the importance of um, detailed you know, tagging or the ability to do showbacks at a very fine grain level because they, they might not have realized otherwise. You know, if, if people assume that, oh, well, it's Amazon, they must get these, they must get um, uh, AWS services for free kind of thing. Obviously, they don't. Obviously, it's all very carefully monitored. I mean, they, they hit hard limits at 5% of load. <laughs> I think they yeah. might have noticed. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, definitely they don't. They definitely get, don't get it for free, but they they do budget transfers between you know Amazon and Amazon AWS and all the business units because that's how big corporations work. They move money around inside them to fund things uh, because everyone has to make a profit, <laughs> or you're just a cost center, um, and so you know that's a typical thing. But I, I imagine they have really great rates that, versus though we get as you know the public. I'm sure, they get heavily discounted. All right. Well, that was uh, fantastic. Thanks a lot uh, for joining us this week, Peter. We will miss you. Uh, it's been a pleasure once again. Thank you. I will miss you all as well. I was going to miss you until you mentioned Ruby on Rails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're down to one Ruby on Rails person, uh, which is me. And I'm not even that much of a Ruby on Rails fanboy anymore. I used to be. Uh, but I found I found my way out of that whole hole, uh, unlike Peter. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's been good working with you, Peter. Thank yeah. you. Likewise. Yeah, you're not a stranger, though. We'll still see you. At yeah, events and I'll conferences be around. And we always have a beer together. So, and you know, I still expect you know to be the man of the ground. You know, the the reporting from you know reinvent or or next conferences. You know, like in a thunderstorm, sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Very good. Well, thanks, you guys. See you next week here in the cloud. Bye bye. See you later. Right. Bye bye, everybody. And that is The Weekend Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.